my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the new youth pastor, and I'm really enjoying kind of getting to know all of you. So, uh, and thank you that you have been so willing to get to know me as well. So uh, um, I get to preach this morning. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, okay, I'm getting to know you guys, and you're getting to know me, so let's pick something really easy. So we're going to talk about how Jesus is going to vote in the upcoming election. Um, <laughs> And it's going to be awesome. Um, just kidding. You can relax. It's okay. We're not going to talk about that. Um, so yeah, I am the student ministries pastor. It's been an honor and a pleasure to lead students and get to know them and you as families. And if you have a middle or high school age student or know a middle or high school age student, I would love to meet you and meet them and, and um, get connected with you guys. So that's... Um, yeah, it would be great. Um, yeah, woo! Um, here's the thing, though. I So I just want to let you know a little bit about who I am and who, um, you know, what, what I am doing here at OCEC and why I love Jesus. And then we're going to kind of get into our passage for today, but just really quickly, um, I became a follower of Jesus through a student ministry program in my hometown of Salem. And I have a deep abiding passion for student ministries, for students coming to know Jesus and to uh, them growing in maturity in their faith and walking with Jesus throughout the rest of their lives. Uh, so that's why I'm doing student ministries right now and I'm loving it. Um, I'm also married and do I, oh yes, cool. Uh, so Maria and I, my wife, just celebrated four years. That's us uh, on our anniversary, well, a little bit before our anniversary, actually, this year, we went and celebrated, and um, it was really fun. We were in Big Bear, California, and we told the person at the restaurant that we were celebrating four years, and we got free dessert. So um, I don't have a ton of marriage advice right now, but what I will say is if you're celebrating an anniversary, tell everyone, because you get free stuff. Um, that's the idea. Um, we, uh, we met through church, have had, um, we, we love each other very much and love being married and marriage is awesome. Um, we don't have any kids, but we do have a wonderful dog. Her name is Luna. Um, she's very cute. That's her just really hamming it up and trying to get treats for from me or, or cuddles or something like that. I don't really know. But anyway, that's her. She is a poodle mix, as you can tell. Uh, and she's very sweet. And so anyway, that's her. Um, and I um, have, we have lived here in the Portland area for a few years now. Uh, we moved up here a couple years ago so that I could finish school at Multnomah University. And um, let's see if I can blank this out. There we go. Um, and I, uh, so I actually just finished in December of this last year getting my master's degree in Old Testament. So that's kind of my like educational bent. Um, and really where that all started was a class that I took in my undergrad called Old Testament Biblical Theology, which sounds really exciting and riveting, right? Um, but I took this class and it blew my mind, totally blew my mind. I'd been a Christian for a little while. I had kind of been reading my Old Testament a little bit and I, I thought, okay, this, you know, this is part of my Bible. This makes sense. This is something that, you know, we read that maybe could be, it could be useful for us in some ways. And, but I never, I don't think really got how it connected to me as a follower of Jesus. When in reality, two-thirds of this book are the Old Testament. And so what I learned in this class and throughout my, my time at Multnomah is that the Old Testament is really one unified story that leads to Jesus. 
It's one unified story that leads to Jesus. And there are pieces of the Old Testament, as we look into them and dig into them and think about the ramifications for our lives, that lead us to have a greater image of who God is and a deeper longing for Jesus to come and to be with us. It's really not just a bunch of super old, kind of random morality stories that we all learned in Sunday school, but the Old Testament is like a gritty, raw, compelling, mysterious, hope-filled, complex network of stories that get together and point us toward Jesus. So we're going to be talking about the old, uh, a passage out of the Old Testament today, out of the book of Exodus. And so after I finished my bachelor's degree, then I went on into my master's, right? I learned a couple of languages. I wrote a book. Um, <laughs> not really, but I wrote a thesis. Um, and if you are ever kind of wondering, you know, how am I going to get to sleep tonight and I'm out of melatonin, you can just send me an email and I'll send you a PDF of my thesis and that'll help you go to sleep. But um, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a passage in the Old Testament today out of the book of Exodus. And this is a passage that many of us probably have read before. Maybe we have thought about this before. Um, and the reason that I want to revisit it today is because it's foundational for our understanding of who God is, the character of God, as God being a forgiving God. That's the title of my sermon today, The Forgiving God. Or, sorry, The Faithful God. I don't know why I said forgiving, because I have it in my notes right here in big, bold letters, but The Faithful God. God is faithful. That is one of the underpinning elements of God's personality and character. It's written and woven into his very nature as God, that he is faithful. So let's talk about, really quick before we get into our text for this, uh, this morning, I just want to talk about some context. Um, basically, we're dropping into the middle of a conversation between God and Moses. And we're dropping into the middle of this conversation where God has chosen to meet with Moses face-to-face -face in his tent that he set up outside the camp of Israel, okay? So Israel at this point has actually committed some pretty big sins, and we're going to talk about that later. Um, but what that resulted in is that God would not go into the middle of the camp because if he did, his holiness would just like wipe everybody out. It would be like in that, that scene in the Raiders of the Lost Ark when everyone just kind of like melts. Um, that would kind of be what the deal is. So God's like, all right, Moses, I'm not going to go into the middle of the camp because if I did, I would destroy you guys. So instead, I'm going to meet with you outside the camp. And Moses would have these conversations with God and he would meet with him face to face. And the Bible actually tells us that he would talk to Moses as one speaks to a friend. Moses and God had this very special sort of dynamic relationship throughout the book of Exodus. And we're dropping into the middle of this conversation where Moses is like, God, I need to figure out who you really are in this, in this situation. Show me, show me your ways. Show me what you do in the world. That was his first question. And then we move into our passage for this morning where Moses says, let's see if I can get it. Uh, there it is. Moses says, please show me your glory. So Moses says, please show me your glory. Show me who you really are, God. And he, that is God, says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. 
And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you, Moses, cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and I will, and while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. In other words, Moses, because you can't see me in this, like in all of my glory, because it would destroy you, I'm going to hide you. I'm going to hide your face. And then I'm going to walk by and then you can see the kind of the afterglow. I'm going to put on the afterburners and you're going to be able to see me. All right. And he says, but I will, then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So then the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first which Moses broke, by the way, um, and God reminds him here, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. It's like a little twist of the knife, right? Uh, good job, Moses. Uh, be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. In other words, Moses, you and you alone. Just you. It's going to be you and me. We're going to have this moment. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Now, oh, there it is. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, and here's this passage that you probably have read a million times. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And in this context, we're actually talking about thousands of generations where we're kind of like pushing towards forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers unto the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Here's kind of the big thing that I want us to get out of this once we kind of move on after this. He says, there it is. God keeps his promises because of who he is. God keeps his promises because of who he is. He is faithful because of who he is. Look at Moses' response. Let's go back a couple slides here. Moses' response. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped, and he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go into the midst of us. In other words, don't meet, don't meet with us outside the camp anymore. I want you to come in to the middle of the camp, for it is a stiff-necked people, these people are stubborn, but pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And then God said, behold, I am making a covenant. I'm making you a new promise. Before all of you, all of your people, I will do marvels such as never has been, have, such has have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. God is faithful, and he keeps his promises because of who he is. Now, when God comes 
And he says, I'm going to proclaim my name before you, Moses. He uses this phrase that we see in our Bible in our Old Testament a ton. He says, the Lord. And you'll like see in your Bible, L-O-R-D in all capital letters or like small caps or something like that. That in your Bible is a signal from the translators that's telling you that this is God's divine name. This is the name of God. So God's name isn't the Lord in the sense of like, that's, that's his name. His name is actually Yahweh. This is the name of God. And he proclaims his name to Moses and then identifies his name with some phrases that actually uh, describe who he is. He keeps his promises because he who, who, of who he is. So he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. These are the things that God chooses to highlight about himself. He's merciful and gracious. Some of our translations will say compassionate. When you're compassionate for someone, you want to get on their level, right? And you want to have a moment where you and, and this person connect, even in a moment where they're going, they're like going through some, someone or maybe they're not at their best, but you have compassion on them because you are a compassionate person. And God is saying he's a compassionate God. He is merciful and gracious. He says, I'm slow to anger. I'm patient with people. I don't know, like, um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a lot of trouble being a patient person, <laughs> being slow to anger. Um, that's one of the things that, you know, it, some people have a really short fuse, right? Um, and sometimes, especially when I'm driving, and my wife will attest to this, I'm like, come on, go. The light's green. Let's go. Come on. <laughs> I don't know that that would be God's character while he's driving. If we were to put him in a car, I think he'd be like, well, all right, here we go. We're, gonna go, we're just going to move at this other pace, okay? He's slow to anger. He's patient. God does not have a short fuse. He's not sitting up in heaven waiting to just pounce on us the moment we do wrong. But he's slow to anger. Some of our translations will say long-suffering, which I think is interesting. He's long-suffering. And he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This phrase, steadfast love, is one that's going to come up in our, that comes up in our Bibles a lot. Steadfast love or loving kindness or something like that. That's one of the words. And the idea is love that remains. Steadfast love. Love that chooses, love that cherishes, love that doesn't walk out on us. And he says that I am abounding in all of this. I'm abounding in these kinds of things. I overflow with this. This is my character, Moses. Moses says, show me your glory, show me who you really are. And God's like, you want to know who I really am? Here it is. I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and I keep that love that chooses, love that cherishes, love that doesn't walk out for thousands, generation to generation. I keep that love, and I don't walk out on my people. 
that is an incredible foundational piece of the identity of the God that we worship. That he is steadfast in his love for us and steadfast in his love for his people. Furthermore, he's also just. He says, I'm not just going to overlook sin. He's like, I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. However, the consequences for that still exist. He says, I visit the iniquity of the fathers unto the children and the children's children. Now, this is a verse that sometimes can trip us up because they're like, well, hang on, Moses. If I sin, or hang on, God, if I sin, you're going to punish my kids because I sin? Like, what is going on here? This is, this, this is a passage that raises a question for me. What is actually going on here? And I don't know that this is God saying, well, you know what, Moses and, and people, if you mess up, your kids are going to have a hard time, and their kids are going to have a hard time because of you, and because I'm going to punish them specifically because you did something wrong. I think what this is doing is explaining the fact that sin has ramifications that can last for generations. Does that, like, or we, or we, can we get a nod? Yes? <laughs> cool. So that's kind of the idea. God is saying that when we walk away from him, when we abandon love for God and love for others in favor of love that turns inward on itself and we, where we decide that we're going to have selfish love that only cares for me and my own, that act can have ripples that go out for generations. But notice this. He keeps steadfast love for thousands, generation to generation to generation. However, these ramifications of sin go down to the third and fourth generation. In other words, if we turn back to God, we're only dealing with a shorter, shorter amount of time. So God is emphasizing here his compassion, his forgiving nature, his ability to take something that is broken, restore it, and walk it back into relationship with himself. So notice the contrast. God keeps his promises because of who he is. Because he is merciful, because he is gracious, because he is slow to anger and abounding in loyal, choosing love. For the, like for thousands, this is the God that we worship, the faithful God. And there's another element of this passage that I think we need to talk about today. And that is that God keeps his promises even when we don't. God keeps his promises even when we don't. Now, I alluded to this a little bit earlier. But this passage where God reveals his nature and emphasizes his grace, compassion, mercy, forgiving, choosing love comes right after the golden calf incident, which we have probably all heard of, or most of us have heard of this. But let me just give a little, like, a little context for us so we can kind of understand what's going on here. Now, in chapter 32, basically what had happened 
is Moses, who by this point is getting up there in years, okay? He's, he's, he's moving into sort of the, the autumn of life, I would say, all right? Um, decides, or God actually calls him up the mountain to meet with him, calls him up Mount Sinai. So here's a picture. All right, a little bit of like explanation of this picture. So this building in the foreground right here, this is actually a, a, a monastery, a Christian monastery called St. Catherine's Monastery, all right? Um, interesting stuff about this thing. It's the longest continuously occupied Christian monastery in the world, formed about uh, five 60-something, like 560-something A.D., all right? So it's been going on for about 1,500 years. It is also the home of the, uh, the oldest continuously running library in the world, which is interesting for me as kind of a nerdy person, but that's cool. But in the background, this big hill, they decided in 560-something to build this building at the foot of what is traditionally thought to be the mountain, the spot where Moses went up to meet with God. So this big kind of hill, sort of Smith Rock looking, you guys have been out to Smith Rock in, in Central Oregon? It kind of looks like that to me. But there's this big mountain in the background. Now imagine your leader, who is um, probably not exactly in the prime of his life, all right, goes up this hill kind of in this little crack in the middle and goes up there. And then, as the Bible tells us, a cloud descends on the mountain, and then there's fire and lightning and crazy stuff, and he's gone for 40 days. 40 days go by before you hear anything from this guy. I don't, in, in this case, I don't know if I really, like, blame the people for thinking, well, Moses is a goner. Like, there's no way. He's not coming back. God called him up there, and there's, there's been a problem, and he just got, like, vaporized or something. Like, that's probably what happened. So, in this point, I don't know that I totally blame the people for thinking, well, Moses is a goner. But here's the issue. Instead of saying, we're going to sit and we're going to be here in this covenant, because they have just made an agreement with God. God has just pulled them out of Egypt met with them, given them the Ten Commandments, and then they entered into a covenant with God, and they said, yes, we will follow all these rules and stipulations. We're going to do it. We want to be in relationship with you, God. This is going to be the best. And one of the first things that God tells them to do, do not make an image of any sort of like bird or beast or anything that's crawling along the ground or anything like that and claim that that's your God because he cannot be reduced to a mere beast. He can't be reduced down to this. So what do they do? They say, hey, Aaron, you're the number two in command. And they're like, hey, Moses is a goner. I don't know where God is. We need to figure out some way to like know that he's with us. So Aaron says, ah, I have a brilliant idea. Take off all of your earrings and all your jewelry. Give it all to me. I'm going to melt it down. and We're going to make a cow sounds good, right? Like, sounds about right. So, what happens? Moses does this. He gathers all the things. They melt all the gold down. He builds a structure. He overlays it with gold. It comes out to, to be this calf, and he, like, you know, works it into, you know, carves it. Aaron must have been a little bit of an artistic kind of person. Um, and then he tells the people of Israel, this is your God. 
who brought you out of Egypt. And then the people of Israel are like, yay, this is the best thing ever. God's with us. Here he is. Let's have a festival. We'll have a big feast. It's going to be fun, and we'll have a great time, and we'll eat lots of food, and we'll do it all in the name of Yahweh, because here he is in direct violation. Like the ink, the ink isn't even dry on the contract yet, so to speak. The dust from the carving hasn't even really settled to the ground. And the people of Israel have decided this is what we're going to do. This is serious stuff. This is, this is a big deal. This is not just like a religious preference issue. This is not just like a, well, I don't really like what's happening at this church down here, so I'm just going to like go down the street to another church, and the, this is more along the lines of what I feel like is going to feed me and be my preference. No, no, no. This is like I have just made a, a solemn vow to a person to their face, and then I turn around and I say, nah, I don't really think I'm going to follow that, and then go do something against that vow. The ink isn't even dry yet. And what's so interesting is Moses, God tells Moses, because he sees what's going on, and he's like, hey, you need to get down there and get these people under control. So Moses does. And he walks down the mountain, and he has the two tablets right here. Like, this has the testimony on it. This is what God said we should do. And then he sees what's going on, and he smashes them on the ground as a direct uh, a, a symbol that what they have done has just broken their arrangement with God. They've, um, they've annulled their marriage to God. This is the context. This is what has just happened happened when God renews his covenant with Israel and then puts out who he is, gracious, compassionate, abounding in faithfulness and steadfast love, slow to anger, keeping steadfast love for thousands, generation to generation. God keeps his promises even when we don't. In fact, at the end of the passage that we have today, God actually doubles down, right? He renews his covenant with them. He says, behold, I'm making a covenant before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of Yahweh for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. It is awesome. <laughs> Not in necessarily sort of like the youth pastor sense of, hey, awesome. Uh, awesome in the sense of inspiring awe. Creating a sense of, wow, something incredible is happening. His work with his people is actually going to be part of how he reveals himself to the world. So not only is he emphasizing, yes, I forgive you, and I'm going to renew this covenant with you, my people, even though you have messed up big time. But not only that, but I'm going to take this broken people who are bent away from me, and I'm going to take this group, and I'm going to be so good to them that everyone around these people are going to see who I am 
in them. I think that's an incredibly hope-filled message for us. Because this is the same God we worship. God keeps his promises even when we don't. He keeps his promises even when we have decided that we're going to lean into our brokenness. So what about us? What do we do with this story? I think that oftentimes, you know, that's one of the questions, right? We're, we're, we're reading through our Old Testament. We come across something that maybe blows our mind a little bit, or we're like, oh, I don't know, really sure. I mean, that was Israel, and, you know, we're not them, and, like, how does this work? What do we do with this story? And I think that's a good question. But I think what a better question is, is what does this story do? Not just what do we do with the story, but what does the story do? What is it meant to create in us? What is it meant to do to us? Because when we read Scripture, we hear the voice of God. When we read Scripture, right, Paul says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for us, yes? So when we read the Bible, there's something that it does to us. It generates something within us. It leads us to action, one of the things that I think the story is meant to do is to reinforce our confidence in who God is, who the God is that we worship, because the same God who is in this story, who emphasizes his justice, but mostly his mercy, is the same God who became a human being and died on a cross on your behalf and mine, and then was raised from the dead so that we might be like at peace with him that we might be his people and he might be our God. This merciful, compassionate God who decides, despite our failings, to continue to keep his promises to us. I think this story brings us immense hope, even in the moments where we just really blow it, both individually and corporately. God has decided that he's going to continue to work with us and within us to reveal himself to the world. We are, as the church, we are a representation of who God is. At least we're meant to be. So when we bring that to others, God is using us to make himself known. And he does the same thing with his people in this passage. And I think it's meant to encourage us toward faithfulness. Just as God is faithful, we are also intended to be faithful. Faithful to our calling, our calling as Jesus' followers. And it, this story emphasizes some of the big, huge, like the huge ramifications of not being faithful to God. And it encourages us toward faithfulness Deciding to continue to follow Jesus even when it's hard or tricky or messy or any of that kind of stuff. Knowing that God has decided that as we do that, he's going to continue to use us and bring his love into the world. So the question that I have this morning to end is like, what would, what would life look like for us this week? What would life look like for you this week? if you reminded yourself daily about this element of who God is.
would you have more confidence? Would you have more joy? Would you have more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and like any of that kind of stuff? Would you have any of that? If we consciously reminded ourselves of the fact that we've been invited into a relationship with this faithful God, would we be more willing to speak an encouraging word to a friend or a coworker or a family member because of being assured of who we are in relationship to God and even more significantly being assured of who God is and how he wants to utilize us in the world? Would we worship more fully? Would we be more inclined to talk to someone we know doesn't know Jesus and tell them about how good God is? I think perhaps we would. I would like to think that as we dwell on the fact that God is gracious, compassionate, forgiving, full of love that chooses, that we would also want to emulate some of that. And I think we can. I think we can. God keeps his promises. He is faithful. He keeps his promises because of who he is. And he keeps his promises even when we don't. And he's faithful to use us even then. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the fact that you have demonstrated to us your faithful, loyal, choosing love. Love that in spite of what we may do or think or say, that gives us hope. God, I pray for each one of us here that we, this week, would be reminded of your faithfulness to us, be reminded of your love, and be reminded of the fact that we have um, been chosen by you. Thank you for who you are. Would you accept our worship? We love you. Amen.